0: Good morning. My name's Luke. If we've not met yet, I know there's some of you I've not met. I would love to meet you after the service, if you get a chance, at minimum, just to get your name um, and say thanks for coming. Uh, but we're going to be in Second Samuel nine today. If you brought a Bible or you happen to use a device, that's where we're going to be. If not, we will put it up on the screen. But we've been walking through the life of David in his major episodes, right? That's what we've chosen to go through this summer, Um, not hitting everything he did or said, but the big things, and really looking to see how those passages show us a portrait of the character of God. Who is God? It shows us who we are, really, as we kind of resonate with the characters in the passage, and then it shows us the gospel in, in a very acute way. It shows us very powerfully, the story of God through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again for you and for me. And then it shows us basically how to walk in light of that. And this passage is no different. So we're going to be mainly in 2 Samuel 9. We'll dance around with a couple other passages, but that's going to be where you want to have it open. And while you're turning there, I'm sure some of you are like me and just consuming as much of the conversation around AI, artificial intelligence is possible. I, I simply can't get enough of it. I'm fascinated with the technology, but I'm probably more fascinated with the implications of it, it's just culturally. I mean, it's a, it's a cultural shift. that's moving at the speed of light, whether you like it or not. Right? It's already reshaping society as we know it. It's not something we're, not, we're no longer talking about what it could do in 20 years or 30 years. We're now talking about how it's impacting different sectors of society today. And as a pastor, I'm most focused on the social ramifications. And probably one of the most key areas of interest for me is how chatbots are acting as surrogates for deep friendship. If you're unfamiliar with what a chatbot is... You're not you know, irrelevant, there's nothing wrong with you, it's just that it's fairly new, but you've probably interacted with chatbots that are trying to help you. you know, the new support is through a chatbot down in the bottom right-hand corner of whatever you know, software you're in or whatever website you're on, but it's basically how you interface with AI. That's how AI is talking to you is through these things called a chatbot. And for millions of people, chatbots are becoming friends. With no risk. I'm saying millions. I'm not saying thousands or even hundreds of thousands. We have now, in in time, but we have now gotten to a place in society where millions of people are accessing chatbots just to make friends. It's big money. One of the largest companies we have right now that focuses on this one singular application of AI is a group called Replica, spelled with a K, because of course it is. But Replica is this site that will, with a monthly subscription, build friendships for you, handcrafted by none other than you. This is their promise. They're probably their mission statement, but they call it their promise to you. Always here to listen and talk, always on your side, a friend you can trust with whom you can feel free to pour out your secrets, your wishes, your dreams, and fears with complete anonymity, which means you won't be judged, you won't be betrayed. Again, this is fascinating stuff, right? There was one journalist that entered into this extended process of trying this out, and then she gave a review afterward. And one of the things that she said that was interesting is she says you have to kind of talk to it like it's someone from another country, meaning you have to repeat yourself in many different ways, and the interchange is kind of awkward. But she said it was worth it because, in her words, not mine, they become a replica of you. It's no risk, right? No risk. But at the end of her trial, she wrote down that she faced the bitter realization that A, you have no friends. B, you're talking to a chatbot. C, that means you're talking to yourself. You're grooming a replica of yourself. Now listen, that might be true. Her review of this might be true, but you do get to customize your relationship. Now this is the furthest iteration of what we call retail relationships. Retail relationships, I almost don't even have to explain for you to know what it means. It's kind of implicit in the name. A retail relationship is a relationship that is established based on what you and another party brings to the table, right? I bring you money, you bring me a good or a service. Um, You have things like points, miles, rewards clubs. These are the symbols of a retail relationship. And, And we understand how to navigate retail relationships fairly well. Meaning we know how to enter them and we know how to exit them. I mean, how many of you, don't raise your hand because it would be everyone with a cell phone, has had to text STOP to opt out, right? That's you navigating a retail relationship, believe it or not. I am STOPPING to unsubscribe. We just have to type it in all caps and then we move on with our life. We do this effortlessly, don't we? And it makes sense when you're buying eggs, two-by-fours or, or, or looking for an auto mechanic. These retail relationships, they make total sense. But we also, because of who we are, we import that way of thinking into how we build relationships. Right? This is how we relate to each other. We, including myself, all of us, look for low-risk, contractual, retail, frictionless connections that we could slip in and slip out of anytime we want. This is true platonically but even not platonically, it's true. I mean, probably the deepest iteration of a retail relationship is hookup culture, swiping, right? Because then we can just opt out very quickly. We've come to a place in culture where we consume each other rather than covenant with each other. That's what we're seeing and AI is speeding it up. Think about it in your own life. Have you ever shoved past a relationship because it doesn't bring the same vibes anymore? Effectively texting stop to a person you ever done that? They just don't pay off. They're limiting you. You feel disadvantaged more than you want to. Or maybe this has happened to you. You have been fired as a friend, dumped, unfollowed. You see how brutal we can be to each other and how brutalized we could be from each other, making us lonely of the soul? Listen, the Bible speaks to this brilliantly. The Bible speaks with a loud firm voice on this all the way in 2023. That's what I love about your contemporary Bible. So we're gonna look at 2 Samuel 9 because it's the most helpful, I think, and this is in my opinion, you could disagree with me, you're free to do that, but in my opinion, I feel like this is the richest, most beautiful picture of the gospel in the entire Old Testament. Let me say that again. In my opinion, I feel like this is the most gorgeous portrait of God's love for us in the entire Old Testament, and there are a lot of them. I mean, if you've been around for even two or three weeks, we do make a big deal of finding how every passage shows us in in brilliant lights and color, in brilliant granular detail, the beauty of the gospel for each of us. This text is no different. So let's look at 2 Samuel 9. We're going to walk through it just a little bit. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to do all of the heavy lifting, and it says this. Verse one, and David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Odd detail, right, that he's crippled in his feet. There actually, if you were to hit rewind and go back about four or five chapters, and I'm going to read it to you. Stay where you're at. It describes how this young man became crippled. In 2 Samuel 4.4, it says this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is the same guy. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel. What news is that? They were killed. It was in a pretty much of a useless battle. They were killed. And the nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name is Mephibosheth. This is an interesting fall. I've remarked on this even from this stage before. I don't know what kind of fall this is. It's not like he was a baby and he was dropped and can't use his legs. He was five, right? Isn't that what it says? Yeah, He was five years old, so I don't know if she dropped him out of a window. I don't know what kind of a fall that was, but it was a significant fall because he cannot walk, right? Okay, so that is who this is. Let's go back to verse 4 of our key passage today. The king said to him, him meaning Zeba, where is he? And Zeba said to the king, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan." And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons, Ziba, and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Then Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Let me pray just for a second. Father, I ask that this word would permeate our hearts. It's not ancient script to collect dust. It's living words to change our heart. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would carry these words to interpret us, to comfort us, to challenge us to lead us, and to change us. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, this likely happened to Mephibosheth when he was in his 20s. That's our best guess. We don't really know. But what we do know is what his name means. The etymology of his name, it means basically to be broken and scattered. It it means shame and humiliation. That we do know. I mean, a person crippled in this culture was not valued or even had the integrity that they do today, right? No wheelchair ramps around this area at this time. No Americans with Disability Act to protect and to take care of people like Mephibosheth. He had to be carried everywhere he went as this uh, symbol of a rebel king's shame. Everywhere he went. In this culture, this guy brought nothing to the table. Nothing. But a limiting liability that he did bring. And the more I read this passage, and I've read it for years and years, he must have stood out in his family tree, right? Loaded with men of consequence, leaders, kings, warriors. This guy is not. He's a branch that kicks way out. But one day, deep into... David's leadership, and, and, and I know it's the summertime, people pop in and pop out, maybe the last time you were here, David was still a shepherd boy, <laughs> that time has passed, we are moved on, he is now a king, he is in leadership, and he has a moment where he says, is there anyone I can show kindness to in the family of Saul? That word kindness, when you really extract out what the ancient language is, it's a said it's more of a steadfast love, a covenant love, right? It's a real love. It's a love that doesn't leave, It's another way of saying it. And he says, is there anyone? Anyone? And now this is going to be a disadvantaging love for David. This is going to be a liability for him. And already I'm jolted by this story because we are so used to disposable retail relationships. And what this story does is it flips everything on its head and shows us this very illogical friend structure. And this is why. It's modeled after the gospel. It's actually modeled after the gospel. And I know it's a thousand years before Jesus comes to walk around and make chairs or whatever he made as a carpenter and speak and build disciples and then die and raise and burst from the tomb. It's, it's a thousand years before that happens. But we already know, and you know this if you go to the end of Luke and you read that, that all of the Bible, Jesus says, from Moses to the prophets and the Old, uh, Old Testament relates to him, points to him, anticipates him. Even a passage like this. It anticipates the gospel one of the reasons I love it so much. And what we're going to do is I'm going to point out maybe two or three pinnacle truths about how we see David operate that is going to show you and I deeper texture and bigger scope of the gospel for us today. today. I mean, the most obvious thing is, is that he doesn't destroy his enemy, but he loves his enemy. That's what stands out. Notice that Mephibosheth trembles as he does. This is why he's trembling and falling and paying homage. It's because In his mind, this is his last day. He's about to die. He's about to be struck down. He would be acting as you and I would act if we knew that we had minutes, not days left. You start evaluating your life. You start thinking about your last breath. That's where he is at right now. So, of course, he's trembling. Kings throughout history would destroy every living connection to the last dynasty because survivors would always be that point of reference for any future revolt. So it would always be safe to get rid of him. Just to say this is not politically expedient for David to reach across the political aisle, so to speak, and adopt a rebel that represented his fiercest enemy over a decade. Imagine that. Imagine seeing something like that today. Let me say, this is not discovered in any other world religion. You might find world religions that will have a statute or a few words on how you should not murder or show vengeance in any way. But to befriend an enemy, you're not going to find that. That's native to Christianity only. Another thing we see is that David searched him out. Again, only found in Christianity. In other world religions, we seek God and we select God. In Christianity, God seeks us and he selects us. Which is why we find Paul in Romans saying, no one, no one, not one person, not even one, seeks for God. And I know what some of you are thinking. The same thing I've thought. Not true. I remember doing that, Luke. I remember seeking God. I remember choosing God. And you're right. I, d- I did too. I-, I remember it too, in a way. Certainly, that was true, in a way. I remember looking at the truth claims of the Bible, of Christianity. I remember shopping it out. I remember assessing Christianity as I was hearing it from my friends, as I was hearing it from pastors. I remember running the numbers, evaluating the claims, then counting the costs. I remember all of that. And it sure felt like I was seeking. It sure felt like I was choosing and selecting. But all of that came from a heart that had already been sought, found, and effectively called. All of it. God's hand had already grabbed me. I had already been beckoned to appear before the king, even if I didn't know it. This is why John says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here's another thing. When he found me, I was a dead dog. He found me hiding as a dead dog, to use Mephibosheth's words. Romans 5, Paul says, we were enemies when reconciled to God by the works of God. Enemies, rebels. Rebels. See, God takes initiative according to God's beautiful sovereignty, according to his plan, according to his heart, according to his timing, all for his glory. All I do is receive, just like Mephibosheth is doing here. And when he finds me and when he finds us, he finds us hiding. He doesn't find us seeking. It's not not as if God looks down and he's like, you know what, Luke is working pretty hard. I mean, he's read an awful lot of Bible for a guy that's not even a Christian. It looks like he's seeking. It kind of looks like he's really close. Let's give him a push. Let's just give him a little bit of push because he's already halfway there. Look at all the weight he's bearing. Look at all the work he's doing. That's not the case at all. When God found me, he found me running away from him, not wanting him, an enemy, a rock-throwing enemy. He found me fallen. He found me crippled. Another thing, and I think this is important for the gospel, is David did this because of his love for another. Not because he loved Mephibosheth, and we even see it in the passage, for the sake of your father Jonathan, he says. This is fascinating to me. You know, Jonathan was killed. If if Jonathan was killed in a pretty much a hopeless battle along his father on the top of a mountain, you can go back a few chapters and read about it, Jonathan is dead, right? And if you're not familiar with the story, maybe you're a guest today or you're watching for the first time, they were best friends. But they were beyond best friends. They were covenant friends. There was this moment when they met, and Jonathan was just taken by the mark of God on David, and he gives him his armor, gives him his royal robe, gives him his sword, and he locks into a covenant with David, saying words like, from now on, our bloodlines are going to be tied together before God. It broke David's heart that he was dead, right? But now he looks upon this young man, and he no longer sees an enemy. He sees his friend. He sees his covenant friend. He sees Jonathan. This is brilliant here. Again, only Christianity extends the story of approval and adoration based on the work of another, based on the righteousness and the identity of another. All other world religions require that you stand on your own righteous deeds. Not so with the gospel. Not so. We see this in we, we see this all throughout the Bible, but 2 Corinthians 5, we see this swapping of righteousness. We are given righteousness, the, the righteousness that was built and held by Christ Is we gave him our unrighteousness. And this beautiful trade, this beautiful trade is how God sees us. When the father looks at me, he doesn't weigh my deeds, he weighs the deeds of his son. It's important for us that he invites us to a table despite our limitations and disadvantages can you see the texture and the hallmarks of the gospel of jesus in such a story as this (laughs) and it jumps out mephibosheth had fallen compromising him physically from that point on as he carried deep shame just like me also fallen crippled of soul carrying my deep shame and humiliation Mephibosheth was called upon as he suffered in this place of hiding, just as I was called by God into his presence out of hiding as an enemy. David had a steadfast friend in Jonathan who was killed on a hill by enemies. I also had a steadfast friend killed on a hill by enemies. David had a covenant friend who put himself in harm's way to keep David out of harm's way. And I have a better friend who didn't just put himself in harm's way, but put himself in the path of death to free me from death itself. Just as David saw Jonathan as he delighted in Mephibosheth, the father sees his son and he delights in me. The king adopts me, an enemy, a dead dog, into his royal family. Just like Mephibosheth, I get to share in the riches and family laughter for the rest of eternity, and my chair will never be taken away from me. That place is mine forever. Bad day, good day, performance left or right, that's where I sit. That's where I'm loved. Do you see why God has this story in the Bible? It is not just recording a historical event for the sake of letting us know how things went down back then. No, friend, it's much bigger than that. He's displaying the character of his glory to you. We get this beautiful picture of the very nature of God the very edges of the gospel through this story. I mean, how is David able to do this? Listen, it's not because he's a nice guy, because he's not always a nice guy. And it's not even just because he loves God. The reason he can do this is because God loves him. God loves him. And he feels this love. He is satisfied with this love, and therefore he is free to be limited. That's the key phrase. He is free be limited. We see this in Psalm 23, by the way. We cannot figure out on the timeline if this was written before this or after this, but we do note that this is from King David. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, David knew what it was like to be in Mephibosheth's shoes, carried beckoned. He also walked as a dead dog at one time. He knew what it was like for goodness and mercy to follow him despite him. He knew all of this. David is enacting the gospel with Mephibosheth. And again, I know that the gospel of Jesus does not occur for another thousand years, but he knew what it was like to be captured by grace. He knew what it was like to be captured by mercy, by goodness, and to have it follow him as a place was made for him even before the faces of his enemies forever. He knew that. He knew that. So he's just walking it out. And this is what it takes for you and me to be this kind of friend to those who limit and disadvantage us. This is where we import the truth of a passage like this. We must be befriended to friend well. We must be befriended well to friend well. In other words, we must be recipients of this love before we can export it. And I know what you're saying in your head. Luke, that's not true. There are Christians that are good friends, lifelong friends, sacrificial friends, deep covenant friends, and they don't even love Jesus. They don't even believe in Jesus. You might see that, and that might be true for a moment, for a season, for a long season even. But listen, on my own, my endurance will run its course. On my own steam, I will get to the place where I will say, enough is enough, People do it all the time. You see, people do it all the time to family members, to their spouse, to their kids, to their parents, to their steadfast friends. Enough is enough. You cost me too much. You limit my time. You steal from my emotional reserves. You rob my patience. I'm firing you. I'm texting stop. Enough is enough. That's what it looks like on our own steam. And when we do that with each other, it's just gospel amnesia. That's how we condone that behavior. We have forgotten or we might have never even felt or understood the satisfaction and the contentment from being friended by Jesus into a better family. I've never really tasted that satisfaction. So what do we do? We try to recreate it here. I mean, if I don't have Jesus friending me deeply and I'm not satisfied in that, I just have a big hole. I just have it because I've been created to be in community. So I've just this hole, and then all I have left to fill this hole, if it's not Jesus, is you. You. But if that's the case, retail relationships, those are my only strategy. That's all I know, to look for the easiest ones and to fire the hardest ones. And this is what we've learned how to do as a culture. We do it as a church even. The number of people that report having zero close friends has quadrupled in the last 20 years. Quadrupled, right? Honestly, without Jesus, I can only befriend those who create the least amount of stress and friction. And sad thing is, is when left to myself, I have the potential to get all the way to paying a monthly subscription fee to build a chat bot, to talk to me the way I want, to tell me what I want to hear, to stroke me, to be safe, to hear my secrets. And then when I'm tired of talking, I can shut the lid on my laptop or close the app anytime I want. That's where we go to. But with Jesus, I'm free to be limited. I'm free to be disadvantaged because I'm content. I sit at a table I shouldn't even be sitting at. I'm brought into a family I have no business being in because of what Jesus has done for the sake of another. Friends, this is the truth that provokes us to change. This is where we have to change. This is where we have to resolve to repent and not be conformed, but to literally transform from the culture that we swim in. God has called us to reach for better. Because I know, listen, as it stands, if you're like me, you probably walked in with relationships that you have to, quote-unquote, gear up for, <laughs> You walk in, and you're you're fine until they walk in the room, and then you can just feel the energy draining, right? They haven't even opened their mouth, and the drama is sucking all of your emotional reserves out. You're like, man, I love them, but they're expensive. They're costly emotionally. They cost me my time. They cost me my my space. They cost me my everything. I love them, but only because Jesus. (laughs) If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't even like them, but they limit me. We all have friends like that. Listen, to be honest and maybe to be honorable with the text, not all of our relationships are covenantally shaped. Right? We have neighbors that are difficult to love. We have people in cubicle 2C that are difficult to love. But the, but the relationships that grind on us the most, those tend to be covenantally shaped, don't they? They tend to be. A local church body like this, right? Whether you're here, whether you're traveling and you're watching or whatever. A local church body, as we squeeze the, as we make that racquetball court a little bit smaller and the ball moves a little bit faster, we notice the rub a little bit more here. But if you were to reduce the scope a little bit more and put it in a missional community, one of our comm groups, well, then you're going to notice those people a little bit faster, right? The costly ones, the limiting ones. Then you get even smaller into a DNA group, it's even more so. You get smaller into a marriage a fifty percent divorce rate. But covenant relationships or not, what this passage will show us is the cost and depth of being a hospitable friend to people who are broken and full of shame. Virtually the city. Virtually the city. You know, one of the things we've used is a piece of our, I guess, a piece of our furniture culturally at Legacy in our missional communities is the hope for a two-empty chair policy. I don't even think that's written anywhere. Mark would have to tell me he's not here today. But there, there is something that we have vocally been saying with our missional community leaders and even from the stages that our hopes is that when we all gather as a missional community, that there is room for two empty seats. A, l- a little bit of a memorial, a reminder of why we're there, which is to reach the city, to, to have a hospitable place for the city to come and be a part of, And then when we can no longer have room for those two seats, then we just plant another group and keep on chugging, right? But here's the truth about the two-empty chair policy. The people that we're praying for to fill those chairs, they're not going to feel comfortable there for a while. (laughs) It's going to feel awkward. They won't feel worthy to sit there. These are people who, when they are honest, they would say that they have lived a life full of humiliation. Things that they've done, things done to them. Oh, they bring a lot of luggage with them. They will feel unapproachable. They'll be wearing a mask for a while. Friends, listen, we live in a metro area, the greater Knoxville metro area. Statistically, there's 750,000 people that wake up with no knowledge of what it's like to be loved like the gospel describes. No no idea. 750,000 people. No idea. All their relationships are retail, disposable, contractual. That's the current landscape. When you connect your life to their lives, they will limit you greatly. <laughs> They're going to be limiting. They will disadvantage you. You will feel it. But your steadfastness, your hesed, your kindness will depict the Jesus that they've heard of in the past, but now they see. Man, but church, listen, for us to pull this off, we will need to be extravagant recipients of this gospel love before we could be extravagant exporters of it. We'll have to be good, thorough, consistent at receiving this love of God before we can tell anybody about it in a way that makes sense. We are free to spend our lives as people who are limited because our king was one who limited himself to build us a freedom we're free. You don't need others to fill that hole for you. So much room to change provoked by a passage like this. And listen, I know, and I say this every week, I know I'm speaking to a mixed group. Not everybody's excited about Jesus. Or, or maybe you, you were when you were a kid and you're just not now. Maybe you're shopping on Jesus. Maybe you're running the numbers. You're evaluating the truth claims. Maybe you have no idea where you're at. listen, listen, Notice in this that Mephibosheth had no legs in this story, none that he could use, right? He brought glory to David, though, by enjoying this place at the table, not trying to earn it. You don't see him breaking his back to earn this chair. He's just enjoying it, and that brings glory to David. In Christianity, our salvation is detached from performance. It's pulled apart. They don't touch anymore. You know that's how the Westminster Catechism starts out. If you don't know what a catechism is, you're normal, by the way. All a catechism is is just it's a doctrinal statement. It's it's the grand doctrine of who God is in in basically Christianity, but it's broken down into bite-sized statements that we could teach each other with and remind ourselves with. That's what it means to catechize each other. But the Westminster one's about 400 years old, and that's how it starts off. The whole purpose of your life, the whole purpose of you to exist is to glorify a God by enjoying him forever, to enjoy him, not to earn him, not to perform or behave brilliantly, but to enjoy him. And it's in your joy of him that he is glorified. But well, friends, listen, if you're far from God, this won't make your life easier. Christianity doesn't make your life easier by any means. But what do you think Mephibosheth's worst days look like? You know he had bad days after this. Days he woke up with a headache, nothing worked out his way, no good crummy day, but right around quitting time, he probably thought, you know what, at least I'm sitting at the table tonight. My chair is waiting. That can't be stolen from me. That result that I did today doesn't define me. My bad day doesn't define me. My bad performance doesn't define me. My lack of spiritual disciplines does not define me. God, and what he has done for me is what defines me. You see, the problem with Christianity today is that so many people don't really believe that God loves them as much on their worst day as on their best day. We believe that if we have a bad enough day, we walk up to the banqueting table and the chair's gone because we just didn't pull it off. We need to get to rolling our sleeves up and working a little bit harder. Not true. That's not the gospel at all. God rescues us by his own accord with his own grace, for his own glory. And that's something that we can celebrate today.